Yes, you know, some of these programs, you know, cover tuition and there's a lot of benefits, but, you know, we still got to pay rent, we still got to eat. And so investing more, expanding more and financial resources for those programs, I think would also help Gen Z, working class, BIPOC, you know, first gen folks enter the teaching workforce more. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area, and I just wrapped up year 19 in the classroom. Looking forward to year 20. And this, of course, here is All of the Above, your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Shout out to anybody who is joining us for the very first time. We drop these full episodes, these video format episodes, about every other week, more or less, featuring a super dope guest. And then in between those, we drop passing periods. And Jeff, these full video episodes take some time to edit and all that. So full transparency to our audience. We are filming this early in June, like June just started, but it's coming out June 24th. And Jeff, I know that when you think about June, it's Pride Month, June 24th. That's, you know, a couple days after Juneteenth. And I suspect that by the time this episode posts, Jeff, because of our celebration of Pride Month and our celebration of Juneteenth, we might have arrived at a point where we've solved racism and homophobia and transphobia and everybody is united <laughs> together in a nice, happy, humanizing world. So, Jeff, it's possible. It's possible. We might we might should celebrate or something. I don't know, man. What you think? What are, what are the odds we're solving it this month, Jeff? Uh, Manuel, I, while I always appreciate your optimism and your critical lens on the world, I'm going to take a, a bold stance and say 0% chance. <laughs> <laughs> you just said is even remotely true. Uh, in fact, I'm going to put some money on the side of like stuff's about to be a little bit worse <laughs> by the time this episode comes out uh, relative to the time when we are recording it, given the, uh, you know, given the, the powers that be that we're grappling with right now, sadly. Yeah, unfortunately, that's that's the way things are trending. And um, yeah, I agree with you. Zero percent, less than zero, if that was mathematically yeah. possible. But folks- Negative um, percent, yes. You know, it's 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 not too late to to get together with some folks and refresh and tap back into that hopeful humanizing spirit. So we do want to remind folks um, or let folks know if you're joining us for the first time that um, our good friends at Human Restoration Project are about a month away from the Conference to Restore Humanity, which if you go to the website, humanrestorationproject.org slash conference um, and register for the conference, you'll see it's a dope lineup of guests. And if you use the code AOTA, for all of the above, A-O-T-A. You'll get a, a discount that'll also go to support this show. And more importantly, you'll you'll be able to engage in a conference that will hopefully, helpfully um, help us tap back into the important human aspect of being educators and being in this work at a time when the work seems quite difficult, quite difficult. So Jeff, let's see, full episode. We're gonna talk about a couple stories, a couple headlines in education, and we're gonna have a super dope guest on board today. Um, let us know, folks. Let us know, folks. Let us know, Jeff. Jeff, you are folks right now. Um, let us know, man. What's on the agenda <laughs> for today's episode? 
Yeah, man. Well, well, as per usual, we got a good one for everybody, and we have a fantastic guest coming on the show today, man. Well, and after our last full episode where we had on uh, two guests um, talking to us about uh, issues of sustainability and avoiding burnout uh, in the teacher profession, we are now going to have a guest on who is a brand, not even, I guess you would say, a brand new, but a, an incoming uh, future uh, teacher in our wonderful field of education, and who's also uh, a young teacher, a member of the, uh, of the notorious Gen Z, uh, as, <laughs> as it might be said. Um, and we're going to dig into, Manuel, these questions of a Gen Z perspective on the teaching profession. We are in the midst of a national teacher shortage that everybody knows and is feeling very acutely. And so in a world where we need more young folks to be excited about and entering into the field of education, what is the perspective uh, of folks in Gen Z as they, you know, sort of enter into the adult and professional world or consider a career change after trying something out for a couple of years and that sort of thing? Um, so we're going to dig deep into a Gen Z perspective on the teaching profession in these tumultuous times of a, of a teacher shortage and, and, of course, all of the, the major issues that have, have gripped the headlines for the last uh, several years with the pandemic and the racial reckoning and, and all of that. So we're going to get into that today with Brian Odega, who's a... Um, a aspiring uh, teacher. He's currently an educator here in Los Angeles and entering into a master's program at our uh, alma mater, the Harvard Graduate School of Education, um, and is has chosen the path as a teacher. So it's going to be a fascinating discussion, folks. You definitely don't want to miss it. Yeah, sounds dope. We got black excellence. We got UCLA dopeness, Harvard dopeness, Gen Z dopeness, I guess. Gen Z could qualify as dope, although they probably won't ever use that word because it's a, a, a old folks term around here. Dope, but super dope guest on board for today's seminar. But up first, of course, we're going to take a look at headlines in the world of education, and that's going to be in our Do Now coming up next. Stay tuned. All right, folks, it's time for today's Do Now, where we like to take a look at news and headlines around the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, today we're going to get into some key vocabulary. Got to understand the terms and concepts. For today's conversation, we have a lexicon. All right, lexicon, let's go. Let's build up this vocabulary. Jeff, our first lexicon term for today is cha-ching. Nice. Cha-ching. Uh, somebody's getting paid out there. Uh, Facts. <laughs> I, I would assume. I, I use this term when I, you know, get a little uh, check from a consulting gig or, you know, that every other Friday payday. I'm like, nice cha-ching. So I'm assuming that's what we're talking about here, Manuel. It's payday for someone. It absolutely is payday for someone in a very big way. And you would think, okay, yeah. we're talking about payday and we're talking about education. So maybe this is a story about um, properly funding our public schools and boosting our support and resources, especially for the most marginalized um, schools and districts in our in our nation. But it's it's not that. It's not that at all. Someone's getting paid, but it ain't the schools um, that you and I have historically worked with, Jeff. So uh, let's get into it. We get this story surprise, by way of the- surprise. Yeah, surprise, surprise. Um, we get this story by way of the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, thanks to some reporting 
from Jeffrey S. Solocek. And he reports that St. Paul Catholic School in St. Petersburg, Florida, initially told its families not to expect much of a difference in its tuition charges for next fall. But that happened to change after Jeffrey's favorite governor, Ron DeSantis, um, I think newly crowned number one AOTA show hater, uh, taking the crown from uh, former U.S. Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. Um, But yeah, Governor DeSantis signed into law a measure making state-funded private school vouchers of about $8,000 available to all school-aged children, regardless of income. So now... Instead of paying $6,000 per child at St. Paul Catholic School, families will now be charged $10,000 per child, and non-members of the church will be charged $12,000 per child, which is a $5,000 hike from last year. And with the $8,000 from the state covering most of that cost, families will owe far less than what they had been paying, and the school will end up receiving more. Now, the school's Monsignor Robert Gibbons, the St. Paul pastor, said in a YouTube video, quote, if we don't take full advantage of this funding source, we will be leaving money on the table and it'll revert back to the state. So all told, St. Paul Catholic School could bring in nearly $1 million more in the upcoming school year, thanks to this voucher program. And Jeff, I think it's important to note that the um, school leaders are helping families learn how to apply for this voucher to get that money in order to cover the tuition hike, which will actually be a tuition cut for these families at St. Paul Catholic School, with the school pocketing quite a bit of that money. Cha-ching, cha-ching, Jeff. What are your thoughts on this story? Yeah, so I have a few thoughts about this story, Manuel. My first one is like literally nothing surprising about this at all. The 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 behaviors of all the individuals and institutions involved in this equation are exactly predictable uh, <laughs> behaviors. However, I will say one component that wasn't necessarily surprising when I did read about it here, but uh, was actually something I hadn't thought of uh, is the extent to which this is incentivizing greed and, and hoarding of resources <laughs> by religious leaders being funded by the state and religious institutions being funded by the state. And let's keep it real here. What we're talking about is also largely the most conservative religious leaders uh, and religious institutions being funded by the state who also just happen to be among the folks who are the most discriminatory and bigoted institutions uh, in, in our country, or at least among that group, not that they're unique in that way at all, right? But these are like very anti-LGBT uh, organizations, for example, right? Or organizations that have, for example, prohibitions on women being in certain positions of leadership, as another example, right? So uh, what I hadn't thought about, Manuel, because I was so wrapped up in just the sort of general philosophical issue of separation of church and state and the, and the, the expression of a largely right-wing Christian conservative, but certainly I'm sure there's, there's other uh, religions that are participating in this effort as well, but it's generally that you know group of folks who are pushing for this and exercising this policy agenda and they're sort of disciples in our political uh, states. So I was busy with the conversation of like, we need to maintain the hard separation of church and state. This is an intrusion of the church into the state and it is an extraction of resources from the public good into the private religious good and that this is bad. This is bad in so many ways that even the 
hateful, slave-holding, you know, raping and pillaging founding fathers of this country realized that the merging of church and state that they had experienced uh, in, you know, Europe was a bad look. Even they knew, <laughs> knew it wasn't good, okay? They who were like, slavery's cool. We're like, with that, that's bad. So here we are taking steps of regression uh, by the very same people who constantly laud the wisdom of the founding fathers. So I was in that space, Manuel, hadn't even really dug into the idea of what was actually, this was economically incentivizing the behavior it was going to create, which is, of course, these private and religious institutions were going to hoard more money for themselves and then give some crumbs to the, <laughs> to the people uh, who are paying to, you know, to, to have it be a, a quote-unquote win-win. But that effectively what this means is a direct subsidy to the profit margins of private schools. And because they are private schools, these are not you know, these are not nonprofit uh, institutions the way, uh, you know, a, your neighborhood public school is, right? They might technically qualify as being nonprofit in, in some type of way, but these are institutions that can just raise the salary of the, you know, of the priest or the official who's at the head uh, who could just take that extra million dollars, right? And there's nothing to be done about it and no transparency even necessarily to, uh, to anyone outside the school. So this is hugely problematic, Manuel, despite the fact that it's obviously predictable um, at the same time. And this represents yet another escalation of this effort to defund, delegitimize public schools and, um, and expand the intrusion of the church, and in particular, the most conservative, most hateful, most discriminatory representations of the church into public life. And I think it's uh, extremely dangerous. So that's where I stand on this. Uh, what's your take? Yeah, all that is absolute facts, Jeff. Absolute facts. We've report, we have reported on the show several times different stories um, related to what type of education students receive at schools. Like I'm not I'm not particularly familiar with uh, St. Paul Catholic School itself, but religious schools in Florida in particular, but across the nation in general, we've had a few stories about the curriculums that are used in a lot of these schools and how the curriculums are um, very very bad, um, especially when it comes to matters of evolution or, or matters of, of race and experience of folks in slavery. We've reported on schools that have been very harmful towards their uh, LGBTQ plus students. Students who are uh, LGBTQ plus at any of these schools tend not to be able to express that in any kind of way because these are schools that more or less don't allow that at all. So we've had stories on the show before about the, the harms being done to uh, queer students at these schools. So it's very bad, very, very bad. It's not surprising. And to be honest, I can't be that mad at the church folks specifically because like seems like common sense to me like oh all of our parents could get this voucher let's show them how to get this voucher and then we could raise tuition parents won't be upset because in the end they're going to save money we'll cash out you know on that on that on those vouchers so i'm not really even mad at them i'm most upset at just our political system in general and the fact that this is even happening. I think this is a very, very important example for folks organizing against vouchers across the nation. A very concrete and illustrative example of what happens when you allow vouchers, um, especially vouchers that can be used at private schools, 
I remember in Los Angeles, our city controller during his um, run during his run for that office, young progressive cat Kenneth Mejia, he had these billboards across the city that were just a real simple infographic about just how much money goes to the LAPD. And he had these pie charts on there and just you couldn't miss them. And they're so simple and digestible for folks who don't really follow this on the day to day that he won easily because folks are like, damn, that's crazy. Let's get somebody in there who, you know, could monitor this and, and do what what is right to make sure that this doesn't get even worse. So I think this type of story is could have that purpose in those states across the country that are trying to, where there are folks trying to organize against vouchers. Like, look, right here, concrete example. Here's a YouTube video from the leaders of this church that have this uh, private school explaining to their members that tuition is going to go up because of these vouchers and they're going to uh, use these vouchers. And what the guys say, like, if they don't do this, they're leaving money on the table. Like, a concrete example for folks who don't follow this day, day in and day out to see that. Like, oh, yeah, no, this is really bad. This is a transfer of, just as you said, transfer of of funds from the public good to private hands. And it's unacceptable for sure. I'm most concerned with the fact that these schools tend not to accept the students that need the most support. Like, you know, schools, private schools in general, um, Mm-hmm. You know, especially religious private schools, they're not going to take a lot of the special ed students. They're not going to take students who, obviously, they're not going to take students who are queer. They're most likely not going to be very supportive of black and brown students, indigenous students. Like these, you know, why why have a mechanism in place to provide taxpayer funds to schools that are not going to serve the people? So yeah, it's very, it's not surprising. It's obviously terrible in many ways, but I think it's very illustrative and it's an important case for folks to point to during this ongoing fight to uh, protect our schools. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you're, uh, you're exactly right, Manuel. And I, I want to make just one quick analogy on this too, which is we see this exact same type of move in other elements of society coming from generally the, the right-wing conservative leadership of this country, although it is in many ways a bipartisan consensus uh, when it comes to uh, to other aspects of the budget, right? So we we see this and we see the negative ripple effects that it has in, in other areas of life. So let's take corporate subsidies uh, for things, right? So the, the US government heavily subsidizes the production of things like corn or soybeans or, you know, or oil, okay? Uh, <laughs> these kinds of products that we use if, to, to run many aspects of our society, right? And, you know, in theory, what this is supposed to do is allow American producers to remain competitive and keep the, you know, keep the the sort of benevolence of the market running in service of good things for consumers. And yet, what what do we see, man? How much is a box of cereal uh, at the store nowadays, right? Uh, Like that heavily subsidized corn is not keeping your price of cornflakes down, right? That heavily subsidized, uh, you know, gallon of, of oil or barrel of oil is not keeping the price of your, you know, gas down at the pump, right? Like that, that money is being taken out of the system by shareholders and wealthy individuals uh, who are in place to do so, to raise their own salaries and, you know, take massive, uh, do massive stock buybacks and those sorts of things. And we're seeing like that type of consciousness and that type of economic maneuvering now being applied to the public education budget, right? Shifting huge public sums into the privatized space where they can basically skim it off as profit to do whatever they want to do with. And it's, and it's essentially unregulatable or unregulated at least. So just to give an, an analogy there, like we're opening up things that we know are, have negative consequences for people and communities and the environment, for example, into 
the public education space with a budget that is supposed to be entirely in service of kids and communities. So this is a huge problem, you know, and these kinds of things you can guarantee aren't going to just stay in Florida. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So folks, those of you who are part of conversations around school choice and vouchers and uh, maybe in your state, maybe in your region, whatever, link to this article is below this episode. Um, I think this is a real concrete example that you could share with folks who are in their head thinking like, what's wrong with the voucher? It makes sense. This and that, whatever. Show them what happens. Like this is one of the textbook cases of what's going to happen or what will happen when um, that taxpayer money that should go to support public schools is allowed to walk away from the public schools and go to, um, in this case, religious schools, uh, independent schools and, and what have you. So yeah, but Jeff, we do have another lexicon term. We do have another Indeed. lexicon term for today before we get to the seminar. So what we got, man, what we got? All right, man, well, next term is lifeline. Ooh, lifeline. lifeline. Reminds me of, speaking of money, speaking of cha-ching, reminds me of uh, that show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Because, you know, the first couple questions were so easy, so easy, and then the questions <laughs> would get more difficult, but you got three lifelines that you could use to help you through those questions. I remember, I think it was the first guy who ever won the million dollars on that show, used a lifeline on the very last question, just to call yeah. his dad and say, I think it was his dad, <laughs> call somebody and say, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't actually need your help. I know the answer. I'm just calling to let you know, I just made a million dollars. Cha-ching, but that is not the term. The term is lifeline. So yeah, he used his lifeline. I, I suppose uh, this is us using the, our lifelines to uh, support public schools. Yes. That was, first of all, can we just say, folks, that was a beautiful connection of our two lexicon terms for today. Unscripted yeah. from Dr. Dr. Manuel Rustin. Pass the credit. On the back, credit. Man. That was, yes. Well, well done. Uh, Manuel, in this case, we are talking about a lifeline in the form of something that for a whole lot of people is anything but a lifeline, and that is social media as it is used mm. by young people. So uh, fascinating juxtaposition of uh, experiences we're going to get into here, folks. So let's do it. Um, this article comes to us uh, by Claire Kane Miller in the New York Times, and the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, issued an advisory in late May about the effects of social media use on youth mental health. Said Murthy, children are exposed to harmful content on social media, ranging from violent and sexual content to bullying and harassment. And for too many children, social media use is compromising their sleep and valuable in-person time with family and friends. However, the report contained an important caveat for one group in particular, the growing share of young people who identify as LGBTQ. Social media can be a lifeline, especially for those growing up in unwelcoming families or communities. Social media often provides a sense of identity and belonging at a crucial age, much earlier than for many LGBTQ people in previous generations. Quote, it's a lifeline for folks to receive information and to really see that they are not alone and that there are many people like them, said Jessica Fish, who studies LGBTQ youth and their families at the University of Maryland School of Public Health. Young people use social media generally to explore their identities, research has found. By allowing them to do so, it has probably contributed to the fact that LGBTQ people have begun coming out earlier in their lives, which can have long-term positive effects on mental health. So, Manuel, uh, I am so conflicted <laughs> about this story because I totally get 
why, what the data is showing that for many LGBTQ youth, social media provides a valuable lifeline to support education, networking, love, hope, all that good stuff. And as a former principal and still current administrator type, I will say I hate social media for youth, and I think social media is the devil for children <laughs> and parents out there. Ain't nothing good happening on social media for your kids. And I feel like both of these statements are, are true at the same time, and I don't know what to do with myself. So please offer me some, some wisdom and understanding here. Yeah, you're right. There is the good and the bad and the ugly, the devilish, to, to use your characterization of social media. Yeah, this story, it immediately took me to many of my experiences that I've had as a classroom teacher up to even through this recent school year with uh, students who I have who are LGBTQ and are very, very, very involved in social media spaces and my interactions with these students and learning from them about um, the different types of so social media that they engage with and just how important it is for them. The spaces, the the humanizing, supportive spaces, um, the ability to, to be their full self in ways that they can't always be in the school system or at home or in their own community. So certainly I'm thinking of particular students in my head that I've interacted with this school year. And you know, Discord in particular, I think for a lot of folks our age, like Discord is one that we're maybe the least familiar with, but um, Discord's, particular Discord servers that um, queer youth are engaged with where a lot of community, a lot of love, a lot of human uh, hum humanizing interactions are happening there and in some spaces on TikTok as well. But then there's the other side of it, of course. And I wonder what the research shows or what the emerging research will show about the antithesis, antithesis of this, which is, you know, for every um, queer youth who's able to find a, a space, a loving, humanizing space online to help them with all of the challenges that come with being uh, queer youth, how many other youth are finding the really hateful, bigoted spaces and are being led towards more extreme thinking about um, queer youth or about you name it because of these spaces there. So like for you know each young person who's able to like really tap into the love and humanity through their Discord server, there might be another you know, person on another server who just came in kind of, you know, neutral on ideas of race or sexuality or gender expression or whatever, but got taken and in, in, in walked through this path of really extremist thought about it to the point where they grow, they grow up to be the ones marching through targets and tearing up their, their pride month stuff and putting that on, you know, so like there's two sides of it. So yeah, social media is a very complex space. I think generally speaking, especially from my experience as a classroom teacher, there's way, 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 way more harm than good being done through social media. However, I am, you know, very much supportive of young people having the ability to tap into loving humanizing spaces, especially those young people who live in communities and families where they can't be their honest full self. So yeah, man, the good and the bad and the ugly and the devilish for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the reality is like, it's just complicated, right? And yeah. things like social media that can be used for great good 
for great, you know, sharing of, of valuable information, right? Especially in a context of, you know, of youth, right? Like we do collectively as a society such a terrible job with sex education, for example. Uh, you know, I, I, that's probably a little bit of a strong term, but we have too many pockets in our society that do such a terrible job, an intentionally terrible job with comprehensive sex education. They're like, the ability for young people to learn about their bodies, to understand, you know, things like birth control and family planning and to understand what happens to you during puberty and, and not in the context of someone telling you you're bad and have impure thoughts or whatever. Like, that's extremely valuable and, and uh, empowering. Um, there's all kinds of just like cool, I mean, I watch videos online all the time and learn interesting stuff and see young people using new media to, you know, organize and share information and it's great and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And I just know that well as an administrator, the number of fights, the number of eating disorders, the num the amount of, you know, body dysmorphia, um, anxiety and depression, uh, cutting and self-harm, uh, bullying, there's so much stuff that is happening with, with young people in, in online spaces, in social media, that is extremely toxic. And we have plenty of data that is, that is shared in the Surgeon General's report about how huge chunks, like 40% or 60% um, of young people report things like, when I'm on social media, I feel worse about myself like after I'm, you know, I'm, after I'm done, right? Or I feel worse about my body. Or the, like these are, if, if we knew this, if we said to parents, hey, listen, we want your child to like go somewhere, go to the mall for an hour and then come back and they're going to feel more depressed, more anxious, more uh, self-hating than before they went. Parents wouldn't let their kids go to the mall, right? And so I, I, I don't think the answer is pure censorship here, right? And that honestly, like the cat's out of the bag, it's, it's too late for that probably now anyways, but we don't necessarily need draconian measures here to like, you know, say like a country like China that like blocks certain platforms or, the, or this sort of thing. I don't know that that's the right answer, but I do know that what we're doing right now ain't working well for us. <laughs> and uh, there's too many young people that are being harmed. And, and so we've got to find, you know, whether it's better education about media literacy, whether it's better tools for parents to be able to, you know, equip them with the, with the means of, um, controlling access in some way, whether it's limiting time or whether it's like more transparency into what their kids are looking at. Um, and I recognize there's maybe a really slippery slope with what I just said with the needs for, you know, privacy and, and um, access for LGBTQ youth who are exploring things, perhaps in a context where, you know, that could be dangerous or harmful um, if their family knew. So I get it. It's complicated, but like we've got to do something here, Manuel, because leaving it as is, uh, is a problem. And that's why the Surgeon General is putting out this, you know, this advisory, like this, this, this is a huge, huge mental health issue for young people generally. And frankly, probably for folks our age as well, oh, yeah. keep it real, but at least we're like a little better equipped and less in a, you know, developmental state of life to like, we got better tools and coping mechanisms and money to spend on therapy and things than, you know, than kids do. And so we, we need to do something here. Yeah, man, it's bad. It's bad. Many of my students' uh, action research projects this year focused on mental health issues, and uh, quite a few of them focused on the harms 
experience through social media. And yeah, that Surgeon General's report very much is in line with what my students found in their own uh, localized community research about how well, the impact that social media is having on themselves and their peers from body image issues to um, just the toxicity of the bullying and all these other things and, and just scrolling across and randomly seeing a video of some violence happening somewhere in the world and you know not knowing that you're about to watch a video of somebody uh being killed very 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 challenging stuff ahead for sure but it is i think important to just remember that for for uh, many youth especially um as profiled in this article uh, lgbtq youth uh, for many youth social media is that that tool that we were told it would be when it first came out when it was talking about bringing people together and connections and like all the great things that they said about the internet and early social media um for some folks it is that in in certain ways so God, it's complicated man it's complicated but yep. speaking of youth speaking of young people we have i think i think the first aota show guest who is a member of Gen Z, I think, based on my understanding of who qualifies as Gen Z. Definitely the uh, the youngest guest that we've had in terms of their educational career. We have, of course, had um, guests before who are exiting their teacher ed program or recently out of their teacher ed program. Uh, Alyssa Solis comes to mind, but this is somebody who's just now about to go into the program, has been working in education for sure, but um, one of them Gen Zers, one of them Gen Zers. And we are curious as old heads here, as folks who've been in education for two decades, we are curious what a young person thinks about this hellscape of a profession as it looks today with all these attacks, with all these, just everything going on. So the Gen Z view of entering the teacher profession, especially from the perspective of a young educator of color, um, that's coming up next, all right, in our seminar. Bryant Odega in the building. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks so much for tuning in to All The Above. We really appreciate you. And as you know, All The Above is a small operation. It's just me and just Manuel, that's it. We have no sponsorships, which means we are totally dependent on our amazing audience to help support the show. So here's what you can do. Go to our website, which is aotashow.com support. That's aotashow.com support. There you can find links to everything you can do to support the show. You find all the links to every platform that we're on where you can like, subscribe, follow, make sure you share our show with your whole network. Also, you can donate there. We are on Venmo, we're on Cash App, and most importantly, you can find the link to our Anchor page where you can become a monthly patron. Even a small donation once a month will make a huge difference in helping us continue to produce the show. Lastly, you can find there the link to get your flyest, best, latest, all the above show merch, okay? All you gotta do is go to aotashow.com support. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us. And we are super excited today to have uh, just a fascinating guest with us. He is, I believe, the, the youngest guest we have ever had on the show. Uh, the first, perhaps, member of Gen Z on the show. And we are just excited to dig into this conversation with him because in this time of teacher shortages and just so much drama around the profession, what is the perspective 
of Gen Z educators or prospective educators? What is the perspective of the generation who is moving into, or we hope, moving into the field of education and becoming the next generation of teachers? Uh, so we have Bryant Odega with us, who is uh, an educator here in Los Angeles. Welcome, Bryant, to All the Above. Uh, thank you, Jeff Emanuel, for having me here. It's truly uh, an honor. I remember when I was applying for grad school, uh, I was looking for you know, a show where we had uh, educators of color who were talking about you know, education justice. And I was really um, excited to find AOTA, um, not only because of the, what y'all talk about, but also the fact that you are based in Los Angeles, just like me. And so I felt like I hit the jackpot. So it's truly an honor to be here with y'all in this space and with the AOTA family. Well, very much appreciate that, Brian. And folks, let, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest. Brian Odega is a proud son of Nigerian immigrants. He's an educator serving as a long-term sub and social activist who grew up in the working class neighborhood of Harbor Gateway here in Los Angeles. And he became the first in his family to graduate from college, just a, a small local college that Manuel might know a little <laughs> bit about called UCLA. Yeah. Uh, he, he's been an organizer in the climate justice movement, as well as a board member for his local neighborhood council. In 2022, he became one of the first black Gen Z candidates for L.A. City Council. Bryant serves on the United Teachers Los Angeles Political Action Council of Educators, as well as the UTLA delegate to the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor. He is an incoming candidate for a Master's of Education in Teaching and Teacher Leadership at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, our alma mater, of course, and he is committed to helping students cultivate critical consciousness and making education the practice of freedom. Love that. Uh, Bryant, welcome again to All the Above, and I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, we got Gen Z dopeness in the building. Uh, Bryant, first off, congratulations on your burgeoning journey into the world of teaching and earning your fellowship for the Teaching and Teacher Leadership Program at Harvard Graduate School of Education. Um, Jeff and I were there many many years ago. Uh, so we're very excited about your uh, your journey there and all that awaits you in this wonderful world of education. And, you know, every teacher, everyone who enters the teaching profession has their own unique origin story of how they land in the, prof in the profession, how and, you know, why they decided that teaching was something that they wanted to pursue. So we thought maybe, you know, we heard a lot of the dopeness in your bio and, and all that you've been a part of. So we thought maybe we'd start with giving you space to, to share your story and how you landed at the decision to become a teacher and to pursue a master's in teaching, uh, no less. Yeah, thank you for, for the introduction, and I really appreciate your question. Uh, teaching definitely was not part of uh, my plan. Um, you know, I am a first-gen uh, immigrant. My parents came to this country from Nigeria, and it's uh, kind of a joke within the community. Um, but I think there's still some there's some truth in it, you know, the acceptation for us to become doctors and lawyers. Mm -hmm. And so for most of my life, actually, I was, you know, quote-unquote destined uh, to be a doctor and um and then so I went to King Drew Medical Magna High School, Medicine and Science in the Watts Willowbrook area uh, to try to get some experience in the hospital environment to see if this was what if this was really for me. And just being in the hospital and just seeing all of like the like the physical pain that folks were going through and the needles and like there was just so much stuff that I just couldn't uh, stomach. And I pivoted to 
tutoring in um, at Carver Elementary in uh, neighboring Kings, in the Willowbrook Watts area. And but before I talk a bit about that, I also want to just talk a bit about, if I can, like my upbringing. Um, you know, I, my dad was a taxi cab driver. My mom was a nurse, is a nurse. And, um, you know, they were hard worker, you know, hardworking parents who trying to provide for me and my younger sister. Um, and uh, my dad, you know, he was in many ways like a hero to me because he drove a taxi and saw the, all of the kids at my elementary school were getting picked up by regular cars. I got picked up by a, a little taxi cab, uh, which made me feel really special. Um, but when I was seven, uh, my father was detained by ICE and he eventually was forced to leave the country. And so that family separation really had a huge impact on our household. My mom who was in college trying to become an RN. She had to halt her academic aspirations, pivot to becoming an LVN, the bride for me and my younger sister. And so, you know, that really, that early experience of like injustice and my, also my frustration that I really channeled a lot throughout K-12 because, um, you know, to me, my father was a hero. He didn't do anything like criminal, right? He just didn't have documentation and just that impact beyond my own control really made me feel um it was hard to stay motivated in school and so one of the few things that did help me um I guess stay stay like rooted in like life was was tutoring at the primary school um when I went to King Drew working with young kids who you know who are so funny who are so you know goofy and um brilliant um balls at the same time really seeing how some of the experiences that I've had being working class and coming from a household with all types of challenges, seeing that, seeing how similar experiences have impacted these youth who aren't, who are having a hard time reading and writing. And I remember that was a huge moment for me, like the overwhelmingness of it all, like me, you know, who's also trying to figure out his own life. You know, there's younger children who are also going through all types of struggles. And I knew I wanted to be in a position where I can make an impact um, in that area. Uh, teaching was the answer when I transferred to UCLA. So I'm a proud transfer from El Camino College. Um, and at UCLA, I participated in their labor studies program. And one of the courses that was, it's probably the most impactful course for me was on the politics of Latino communities. So learning about the relations between the US and Latin America, but also reading uh, the work of um, Paulo Freire on pedagogy of the oppressed about popular education and um, like the ways of teaching in a way that's like non-traditional, that's more cooperative, democratic, that sees their students as active agents of change. And it was that exact phrasing within that book that I think was the most impactful to me because I, I remember thinking to myself, like, wow, me, you know, a broke blank, um, you know, working class, um, you know, black, you know, man trying to make it in America can also be an agent of change despite my circumstances, that was such a huge impactful moment for me. And that's definitely um, that experience of knowing that I have power within me and also being critically aware of society, really decon um, deconceptualizing um, like the world and understanding systems of oppression, but also understanding um, like the power and community power and, and how that can lead to like community action and change. That's the type of um, energy and philosophy that I want to bring within the classroom because um, I feel like if that kind of approach with professors who really saw me as a human being um, can, you know, empower me to, you know, I guess, you know, go to Harvard, right? I feel like 
I can you know, do something similar for a lot of young folks who come from my neighborhood too. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so much of that resonates, um, Brian. I really appreciate that. Um, that aspect of your of your journey and what has driven you to the field of education. And uh, I think Manuel and I both as as veteran educators at this point have some worry about that, you know, with all the drama around the profession of teaching and the field of public education generally right now, uh, that that, you know, the sort of question of who's going to want to do this work uh, you know, comes to mind, right? And we're in the midst of, you know, this sort of right-wing hysteria around, you know, quote-unquote critical race theory and wokeness. And we have, you know, salaries that aren't keeping pace with the cost of living and rising cost of housing in many cities like here in LA that make it hard for, you know, for teachers to live uh, close by where they teach. Um, and, you know, this hysteria about curriculum and book bans and all this kind of stuff that's sort of swirling around our profession. And I can imagine, uh, especially as you, as, you know, as you hinted at in the context of your, you know, your family, where maybe you're being asked, like, why are you wasting your talent becoming a teacher? Go be a doctor or, you know, that sort of thing. You know, how do you respond to that? What's um, what is, you know, sort of your message to folks who are considering um, joining the teaching profession or coming into the profession of education? How, how are you navigating the, you know, this choice as a as a future and a current and future educator? Yeah, thank you for that question. You know, the issues you raise about the threats and attacks on education is so real. And one of the main reasons why I've been a long-term sub at my local neighborhood school, which is a blessing because um, it's, you know, 10 minutes away, is because of how I just, you know, just there's not enough teachers and just not enough resources and support. And so I'm always there. Um, and, you know, there, and just looking at what's going on nationally with the tax on um, kind of teaching that I want, really want to do around, you know, like critical, you know, cultural, um, like teaching and um exhibits and um, all of those things that really challenge uh, like white supremacy, right? Because that's basically what I think it's all about is challenging um, like the, the current power structure. And so that's why they are trying to silence our voices and ban our books and prevent teachers and attacking tenure so professors can't, you know, teach, you know, with academic freedom. Um, and so, you know what, for me, what I always come back down to is like like my what I feel my purpose is in this world. Like I really do think teaching is a calling. Um, you know, I love so much as I like. So I've worked in politics and I ran for office and I've worked for politicians before. And I think there's a huge opportunity there to make some like really systemic systemic uh, legislative um, change. But for me, I just feel like it's nothing like you know coming to class every day. You know. Um, greeting and being greeted by the students and asking how folks are doing and like the jokes and the learning and um, being a mentor like every single day, you know, I think it's just such a huge blessing. But I also don't think that altruism, right, that a lot of educators have, you know, committed to helping young folks, that altruism should be exploited by, um, you know, district leaders or others who um, think now, since we're going to do the job anyway, that it's okay to underpay us, right? And so that's why, even though, um, so I am committed to teaching, but I also want to make sure that I'm also being involved in spaces like the labor union to organize around increasing the wage so that teachers have are, have a decent standard of living. 
um, and advocating for more investments in public education so our students get all the supports that they need. And I think a huge part of that is supporting the professionals who are providing those services. Um, and so, so that's what I always come back down to is like, is that purpose and the opportunity for change? Because we are making some, especially here in Los Angeles. Um, and that also gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you for that. And, you know, you mentioned in there the the role of the union in your union activity. And I think Jeff and I each started the profession at a time um, when well, shortly before the Great Recession, which happened many, many years ago, but we've each experienced uh, waves of what the economic uh, realities of our nation did, what, what those, uh, what those impact, how those how that impacted younger teachers. So myself as a teacher, I've been pink slipped maybe three or four times. And my perspective at the time in particular was that seniority was what mattered most. So as a young teacher, I felt that the union didn't really seem to have my back when it came to these pink slips. I saw folks um, being protected who I felt weren't doing nearly as well in the classroom as as I was doing, and my role with the union early on was what well, is a little bit complicated. And, you know, that was another era. And now we see unions under attack uh, in various ways and challenges here locally and, and, of course, in other states as well. So we're wondering, as a Gen Zer, as somebody who's new to the profession, um, what your view is on the role of unions in the present context of education and why you think your uh, union activity is so important to your experience as an educator? Yeah, you know, what you mentioned is really important. It's also something that I've learned about when I was um, doing labor studies, learning about even with all of the great um, provisions that unions, you know, brought to us, right? Um, like with the New Deal, um, all of those uh, protections and benefits weren't extended to, you know, Black workers. And so, um, you know, things have changed, but even now still, right? Because there's a lot of emphasis on collectivism, which I think is really important. Because as individuals, it's hard for us to ask the superintendent to, you know, to increase our wages. Um, so there's a lot more power in numbers, but we also need to always remember that um, that we are also still like individuals with our own, you know, challenges, our own school sites, and um, and so definitely appreciate you bringing that up. Um, as a Gen Z year trying to enter union space, um, I am often usually the youngest person in these spaces, and probably the only Gen Z. Um, and I think it's important for me to be in these places because um, because we need more teachers, right? We need more teachers to enter the workforce. And, you know, folks aren't going to be um, uh, as, um, you know, ecstatic to enter the workforce if the wages aren't keeping up with the cost of living, right? As Gen Z, we're coming, as Gen Z and millennials, we're coming up during times of constant economic crises and pandemics and like uh, wars and all this stuff. And um, the notion of like owning a home is like more like a pipe dream than a reality unless we move to a different state, which in even some of these states like Texas, housing, housing costs are also going up too. And so I think it's so important now more than ever to be involved with the labor union to change, you know, some of those cultures that doesn't protect individuals, um, but to also ensure that um, all the things, the gains that we have, um, you know, they are not like it's not permanent, right? Like we, like even recently with the Supreme Court, they just voted um, against um, the Teamsters, basically attacking their right to strike, 
Um, and this is 100 years of labor rights that have been, you know, precedents have been in the law books for, for a long time. And that's also being attacked. And so it's so important for us to organize, to get involved, to protect our rights, um, but to also ensure that um, the future of the profession is also protected as well. So that's why, you know, I try to be in these spaces. And within the LA Fed, I think it's also important in terms of the coalition aspect of it, because um, yes, you know, we are teachers, but we're also, you know, we work with, you know, custodians, work with janitors, you know, we are all part of a broader ecosystem. And so I think it was so important when U UTLA and SIU Local 99 had their solidarity strike a couple months ago, the first um, joint strike in LA's history, the two largest LAUSD unions coming together. I think that type of solidarity is so important. Um, and I just want to quickly add, because uh, all the folks who are attacking education, they're also attacking unions, because they also understand that we are in many ways like the last line of defense when it comes to protecting education. And we we're seeing that in Florida, where they're making it harder and more complicated for folks to join the teachers union. Um, and I just, and I fear that that is just the beginning, right? More states will look to them for how can they also um, reduce uh, teacher union numbers. And so we, we got to tap in, organize, and um, and keep fighting. Yeah, uh, absolutely, uh, Brian. I think you're 100% right about that. And just, just to give folks um, out there perhaps a little bit more context uh, about a couple of things you said. One is the, the joint strike that took place here recently uh, in Los Angeles with uh, essentially the teachers union and then the largest union representing the uh, the classified staff, the support staff who work mm -hmm. on school campuses, who also uh, coincidentally uh, happen to largely be parents of the children who attend our schools, right? And right. so uh, the, the kind of solidarity that you're naming there and the result of that action, which you know, there's complication, you know, technical parts of this, but it will eventually lead to a 30 percent uh, salary increase uh, in a nutshell. Right. And so, yeah. you know, this this was a huge labor action and also a huge economic win, not only for workers who deserve to be paid fairly, but also literally in this case for parents of the children uh, that we teach. And we know about the crippling effects that poverty has on a student's ability to be able to be ready for school and come to school ready to learn. So the, the kind of mutually uh, beneficial um, labor action that, that took place uh, here, I think is a really fascinating example. Um, you also mentioned the recent Supreme Court case, uh, I think at the very end of May, uh, handed down an eight to one decision uh, essentially siding with a, uh, with a business who claimed that it was economically harmed by a strike, uh, by a labor stoppage, and that it had the right to sue the labor for damages um, as a result of that, right? And this is, this is a, like, a, you know, egregious attack on, uh, on workers and organized labor and the ability for people to, you know, fight for humane and, and um, living working conditions. And so, um, you know, just, just want to give a little bit of context around that uh, for folks and, and say that these are massive issues also coming into um, our field in education as well. You also mentioned a very uh, important point, Bryant, about, uh, you know, we need more teachers. And that is 100% right. And we need more teachers like you. We need more teachers who represent the, the diversity of our community, uh, more teachers who look like our students, more teachers uh, who are 
in many cases from the communities uh, that our students are from and who bring their cultural wealth and experience to the table um, in yes. the context of a teaching profession that I believe nationally is still something like 70% white women. Um, even here in the state of California, where 78% um, of the students are students of color, the educated workforce is approximately 58% white and 73% female. Uh, we have very, very few black men uh, working in education, generally speaking. So from your perspective, um, how do we get more Bryants uh, into the field of education? Uh, what are some approaches to diversifying uh, the profession that you think would be effective with, uh, with your generation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the numbers are, you know, very uh, striking, but I think um, it's also like the results of the kind of traditional education system we have right now. I think one of the main reasons why uh, we don't see as many educators of color working in schools is because a lot of us, you know, K-12 education system, you know, creates like um, traumatic experiences for students of color, right? Black students, especially Black girls, you know, have are excessively penalized, um, you know, for uh, violating, you know, codes of conduct, right? So talking back or, um, or you know, my, what I would describe as more like self-advocacy, you know, pushing back or challenging, you know, authority um, that oftentimes gets met with, um, you know, with arrests, you know, and here in Los Angeles, we have moved away from having cops on campus, but in most parts of the country, we still have, you know, police at schools. And so, um, so, so for a lot of folks, probably, you know, may not be as inclined to come back to a space where if that was the first time they were arrested or first time being treated like, you know, being dehumanized, right? Um, and so... I think and that's just one aspect, you know, not to mention many ways in which students are reminded, whether it's in the curriculum, that their experiences aren't, you know, like valuable or, um, you know, have educational value, like in Florida. Um, and so, you know, making sure that K-12 education is equitable and inclusive of all so that students of color have positive experiences and will feel more inclined to come back to make a change here. Um, but you know, in, when it comes to college, you know, I think one of the major barriers for educators of color entering the teaching profession is like the cost, right? When I was going to, even at community college, which, you know, thankfully, because of that, my financial burden is a bit less than other folks. And I still had to work two jobs um, while, um, you know, work while being a full-time student, as I was also interning and doing all the things that I felt help me be more competitive but also just to really get more experience but unfortunately internships don't a lot of these internships don't pay um and so i had to work you know two jobs to get to college because i'm still supporting my household even at ucla um where i continued advancing at my academics and interning and doing all these you know things that i thought i could never do i was still working at macy's um the same macy's i was working at el camino i was working at a different location at ucla because um the reality is for working class students um for you know students of color you know folks who are you know in the barely middle classes even though we're in college and um you know even at the number one public university in the country that doesn't really that doesn't erase you know the economic realities you have at home um you know what is it what's the point of going to ucla if i come home and you know mom is homeless you know and so um removing that financial barrier um bare minimum you know canceling student loan debt um having more robust financial aid packages for um, students of color, um, for working class students. Um, and, you know, for me, you know, what I really would like to see is, you know, free college, you know, for all, 
<laughs> you know, I think we need to go back to um, the, the the culture of seeing higher education as a public good. And as a result, we should make public investments so that we can have an educated, you know, populace um, and, you know, and not continue to perpetuate um, a system that benefits folks who come from generational wealth, because if you come from like that kind of household, um, cost of education isn't really a factor. Um, and, and so we wouldn't have financial barrier from college. And then for those like me who want to enter future preparation programs, we also, you know, my dream, you're making it free, right? But at the bare minimum, also offering those similar financial aid packages and paying uh, student teachers. Um, you know, as I was applying, or I can't either after as I was applying for grad school or after I was listening to one of the all of the above um, episodes and you're having a conversation about uh, teacher prep programs. And I believe Manuel mentioned something about how, you know, um, folks want to be a teacher paying um, to enter these programs. And then you're um, essentially, you know, working for free, right? Because you're a student teacher, it's, it's labor, it's labor's work, but it's free. But because of the nature of doing, being a student teacher, because of the nature of being a full-time student, you don't have really the capacity or the feasibility to work a part-time job. And so that's a whole year worth of potential um, wages you could have earned, you know, gone. And you're entering now a workforce, a profession that is also being underpaid. And so that's tough, you know, <laughs> when, yeah. <laughs> you don't come from much needs. So, so I think, you know, paying our you know teacher candidates, um, you know, in California, we're making some progress, I think, and some other schools across the nation are as well with some of these fellowships. But, um, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to make it seem like I'm asking for too much because honestly, I feel like it's not asking for too much. Like we need to invest more, right? Like even with some of these programs where there's a residency program, a fellowship program, they're offering 10 to 20K um, living stipends, right? Imagine you, you're like me, you're a substitute teacher making 3,000 or so a month, which still isn't like enough, right? Um, you know, you know, uh, in Los Angeles, but making about, you know, 3K a month um, just to like survive. And then now you're, you know, losing that to make, you know, one or 2,000 a month. Um, and so... Yes, you know, some of these programs, you know, cover tuition and there's a lot of benefits, but, you know, we still got to pay rent. So we still got to eat. And so um, investing more, um, expanding more uh, financial resources for those programs, I think would also um, help Gen Z, working class, BIPOC, you know, first gen folks enter the teaching workforce more. Brian, before Manuel asks the the final question here, I just want to share you. You're giving me uh, traumatic flashbacks uh, <laughs> to the, Man. the day after the day after we graduated uh, from Harvard. My checking account had exactly 13 cents in it, and I, I had <laughs> well well over a hundred thousand dollars in debt uh, from undergrad and graduate school combined. Oh, so uh, yeah, so I, I I feel you deeply. <laughs> I'm sorry, Manuel. Yeah. Go ahead. Man, you, you you needed to take that 13 cents, man, and um, invest in some bootstraps and pull on those harder to work your yeah, way up. I, I needed on, to just man. not buy a latte with my 13 cents and then right. everything would be okay, right? Yes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah.
All right. Well, Brian, we know your studies are about to begin very shortly. So uh, before we uh, get you out of here, so you could go ahead and embark on this journey and and move out there to uh, to the Cambridge area, Boston area, and uh, explore and, and learn and blossom into a fully credentialed master's in education having a teacher. Um, you know, we just want to point out teaching, even during the good times, even when it's going really well, teaching is very, very hard work, of course, and existing within this institution of education. Um, it's really arduous, especially for those of us who are justice minded and who pour our hearts and souls into trying our best to um, develop a humanizing space for our students and do what we can to improve upon the system that we have here. So sometimes old heads such as myself and a lot of the listeners and viewers of the show who've been uh, classroom teachers for a very long time or been working in some capacity in education for a very long time, sometimes we forget what it felt like to um, be young and embarking on this journey and, and all the hope and optimism that we had at the time and, and daydreaming, daydreaming about what our classrooms will look like and what our interactions with students will be like and all that. So we do wanna ask uh, you yourself as a young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, um, upcoming teacher, if you could share a little bit with us about what you envision your classroom space looking like and feeling like when you are fully in there in your own classroom, fully credentialed, fully mastered and doing your thing. What What's that classroom look like? What's that classroom feel like, man? Give us, give us some, some, some hope and some inspiration. Those of us who are old heads. I love that question so much. I love the question because it's definitely very aspirational, but it's also rooted in you know long history of educators who are working within the confines of a system that makes it hard for us, uh, for folks who look like us to be fully human. Um, but what definitely gives me hope is the fact that it was their hope to educate us before, like Carter G. Woodson and uh, Richard T. Greener and all of these um, new educators, um, that hope that if we, um, you know, cultivate the minds of the next generation, that, you know, they will continue to add to the legacy of, you know, of justice, of fighting back, and um, knowing that down the, down the line that, that we will win, that we will overcome. And so what gives me hope is, um, is um, what gives me hope and, Kind of like envisioning like what my classroom you know would look like um it's definitely um a space where there's you know just laughter where as you know bell hooks talks about in teaching to transgress you know the, cult the cultivation of excitement students are excited to come to the classroom because they know that they are loved you know by mr odega because they know that when they enter mr odega's classroom or even the school because i also want to do the work of making sure the school as a whole is also um you know, uh, safe and loving of our students, um, that they feel safe because, you know, a teacher cares for them, they love them, that they see them, that they will see themselves within the curriculum, that they know that if they have questions or if they want to push back on what Mr. Digg is saying, that they have the liberty to do so because it's a democratic space, it's cooperative, we're learning together. Um, that even as there are things to learn from Mr. Odega, because, you know, he went to UCLA and he's doing, going to Harvard, but, um, there's also a lot of things that they themselves as the student has to offer to him, to the school, to society. Um, and, and so that is how I envision, you know, my classroom and, um, and my pedagogy, my approach to teaching is still like developing, um, but I've been reading a lot, you know, of, you know, bell hooks, uh, of listening a lot to Cornell West. And, um, right now I'm reading a book, um, by Professor Jarvis Givens, who also, who's a professor at Huxley, 
um, and went to my high school, King Drew. Um, he's from Compton, and he wrote a book about the art of black teaching, the case of Carnegie Woodson and uh, fugitive pedagogy, talking about the ways in which um, you know black teachers were able to, um, like even within the constraints of um, you white supremacist, you know, education, they were still able to um, teach in a way that liberates you know, their students and themselves. And so for me, my approach is going to be rooted in you know, raising the critical consciousness of our students so that they can recognize the world around them, but also recognize their own power within themselves and feeling empowered enough to be the active agents of change that Paulo Ferro was talking about. And so overall, it's about love, it's about justice, and it's about community. Um, and that's what keeps me going every single day. And I look forward to the day where I'm able to do that in my own classroom. Mm. Wow. Right. Uh, what a beautiful way to uh, to end today's conversation. And uh, I know for me, this conversation has, has been uh, not only just fascinating to engage in with you, but also uh, giving me a, a fresh feeling of hope. Uh, knowing that there are educators like you who are who are coming down the pipeline, and I let let me be the first to say, uh, Brian, I work with a network of twenty schools here in Los Angeles, including many schools in Watts, where you went to school uh, as a young person. And uh, a year ish from now, when you're getting ready to graduate, if you want to come back to LA and uh, and teach um, in the community. Uh, hit me up, man. You got my you got my information. We can uh, we can figure out how to make that happen, man. But thank you so much for uh, for joining us here today on all the above. Thank you so much for having me. It's been truly an honor, and I'm just really grateful for what y'all are doing here with all of the above. Thank you. Folks, that's it for today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us, but definitely stick around. Next up is our class dismissed. All right, folks, now it's time for Class Dismissed, where we like to shout out folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. And we just had such a wonderful conversation just now with Brian Odega, a member of Gen Z. So it's only right, it's only right that for today's Class Dismissed, we shout out another Gen Z person, Gen Zer, Gen Z educator, oh, Gen Z person <laughs> making their mark on education. So Jeff, who we got for today's Class Dismissed? Yeah, man. Well, uh, I'm very excited today because we have a story coming out of the state of Idaho. And I think, honestly, the last time we talked about Idaho on the show, it was it was not for good news. It was the, the teachers who dressed up as the border wall for Halloween. So very excited to be having a much more hopeful and inspiring story coming out of Idaho. And that has to do with a young man uh, named Shiva Rajbandari. I hope I am pronouncing uh, his name correctly, um, who in September of last year, at just the age of 18, became... Uh, the newest school board member in the Boise School District. And he has just recently completed his first year of service on the school board. Now, some of you might be shocked by this. Uh, you only have to be 18 years old in order to be an eligible candidate for school board in Boise. And uh, he won, defeating one of these far-right extremists. And um, he has a political organizing background with the Sunrise Movement and, you know, a lot of kind of youth activism has helped lead things in the Boise School District, like a first ever uh, survey about youth mental health. 
um, like advocating for climate change and, and uh, environmental um, advancements within the school district, uh, a bunch of things like that that I think are bringing fresh perspective and also a lot of the priorities of youth, of current students and young people to the table in the policymaking space. And so exciting uh, news. Congratulations to, uh, to Shiva. Uh, out there in Boise, keep up the great work. And uh, I imagine he also just graduated from high school. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that, but uh, uh, congratulations if that is the case and excited to see what, what big news and, and great things are coming next for him along with his continuing work on, uh, on the school board. So good news coming out of Idaho today, Manuel. Dope. I love it. I love it. The, the youth, the young folks, they remind us, they remind us that the future isn't all doom and gloom. We do have some excellent, excellent folks entering this um, hellscape of a planet who are committed to making things right and doing the right thing. So shout out to Shiva and all the other Gen Z folks out there who are marching towards justice and doing what they can to, to, to do better than previous generations did, um, to do better than the folks who created this, this current situation, this current world that we are in right now. So yeah, the youth, man, we're going to be all right. We're going to be all right. But folks, that about does it for this week's class dismissed. Shout out to everybody who is still with us all the way at the end of this episode. Um, do remember, you could catch all of our previous episodes at aotashow.com. And if you liked or enjoyed anything that you heard on this episode, please, please consider taking the time to leave a little written review so folks such as other Gen Zers who are searching for podcasts about education issues uh, to help them understand the landscape could more likely come across it in their feeds. Um, so yeah, leave a little review, thumbs up, five stars, all that good stuff. But do remember, we love y'all. We hope everyone's doing well out there. And um, that about does it for this episode. We'll see you next time.